Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. There is a holy moment in worship services that often goes unnoticed by many of us, including, if I'm honest, me. The moment I'm thinking of is not found at the bright heights of a Mendelssohn prelude, though played brilliantly and expressively on an organ. I'm not thinking of the climactic ending to a joyful choral anthem where the sopranos scrape the ceiling (laughs) and the bass thunders in the deep. I'm not thinking of the moments that come at the table where we take bread and cup and elevate them. I'm not thinking of the font where we pour water and pray. The moment I have in mind is a bit more subtle and far easier to not even notice. In fact, it's a moment that's already passed us by this morning. We can't have it back. I'm thinking of that brief, hesitant break, the infinitesimally small pause, nothing that might be more than a liturgical quarter rest. I'm thinking of the moment that comes between the reading of Scripture and the beginning of the weekly sermon. In our normal worship service here, we read out loud four passages of Scripture from the Bible, and then there's this pause as the preacher moves from the center aisle up into the pulpit. It's, it's a moment that some of you get really nervous about, like I'm going to slip on the stairs or something. Everyone watches. But once we make it to the pulpit, then there is just this breath, just the slightest pause between what has been read and what will be proclaimed. 
In seminary, you're taught to appreciate this pause, this silence, this holy space. You're told to savor it, to recognize it as a moment of ritual transition between the text of Scripture and its interpretation. And we're taught to trust that filling all of the space between the readings and the preaching is God's Holy Spirit working in through, over, around, and often, if I'm honest, in spite of the person doing the preaching. Now, say the preacher read scripture, stood at the pulpit in that moment of silence, let it sit, and then turned and sat back down, and we sang the responsive hymn. I suspect that us Protestant folks would wonder what's going on. Some might think it strange or unusual. A few, a few might rejoice. And in our worship as Presbyterians, the ministry of preaching is the moment where God's Spirit takes the ancient words of Scripture and weaves them into a living word, something that we can cling to, something we can depend upon, something we can even begin to live out. The moment between the reading and the preaching is a space for us to breathe in this reality. It's a moment to appreciate that, and I mean this, if we hear anything at all of God's will— if we are to perceive anything of God's activity, it will not be because of the preacher. It will be because God is good and holy and active in our worship. Our gospel reading today takes us to one of these holy moments between the reading and the preaching. One that stands at the very beginning of, of uh, Jesus' public ministry, according to the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we heard the beginning of Jesus' ministry according to the Gospel of John, which started kind of on an con unconventional note with making more wine at a party. But in Luke's Gospel, the first public act of Christ is to stand in his hometown synagogue and preach. In the church right now, we're in the midst of a season we call Epiphany, a season that bridges the gap between Christmas and Lent. It's a season that begins in a stable and ends on a mountain of transfiguration. And each week, as we journey from the glory of Christmas to the glory of transfiguration, we are introduced a bit more how Jesus' unique identity was made known to the people in his world. And each week, we, we get another clue. Much like the children's game, hot and cold. These texts draw us nearer, warmer, warmer, warmer. You're burning up to the presence of Christ. And today, we get to eavesdrop on the liturgy of a small synagogue in a small town of Nazareth in the northern county of Galilee in ancient Judea. Our gospel text opens today with the following declaration. Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee and began to teach in their synagogues. 
Just a few months after his dramatic baptism, where you'll remember the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus, naming him God's beloved Son. And then, the Gospel of Luke tells us at the beginning of chapter 4, that same Spirit leads Jesus out into the wasteland of the Judean highlands, where he fasted and prayed for 40 days, and where he successfully endured temptation. And during that, and following that 40-day bout with the powers of evil in the desert, Jesus returns filled with the power of the Spirit. And his first stop is his home county of Galilee, where he visited local synagogues, reading from the scriptures and preaching about God's kingdom. And the text says in verse 15 of today's reading, he was praised by everyone. He's off to an auspicious start here. Praised by everyone. Next on his itinerary, was the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, the village that the text literally says in Greek he was nurtured in, where he was brought up, where all the people still remember him from when he was just that high, where those who, some will still refuse to call me Joseph because well, I only know you as Joey, you know. He went to the place where people still thought of him merely as Joseph's boy, as some folks are still apt to do in small towns where even 80-year-olds are still called Bill's son. So here, Jesus and his newly christened student class of 12 are Saturday morning arriving at the small stone synagogue in Nazareth as the typical Sabbath crowd files in, sitting in their typical rows where perhaps their families have sat for decades. Perhaps Jesus' family was there also, sitting in their usual places, anxiously waiting to hear what their son or brother or cousin might say. The text says that Jesus went to the synagogue, verse 16, on the Sabbath, as was his custom, which tells us that Jesus had a habit of attending weekly worship and that the weekly liturgies of the synagogue were fused down deep in Jesus' bones. I personally connect to the phrase, as was his custom, because I grew up in a house that had a similar custom. There was no democracy in our house growing up. The children did not take a vote and decide whether we wanted to go to church or not. My parents were benevolent dictators, but dictators nonetheless were going to church. Are you feeling sick? Yes. How sick? <laughs> if you're not actively vomiting, you're going to church. As was his custom. The weekly readings from Torah, the prayers, the blessings, the preaching, the fellowship, these were fundamentally part of Jesus' formative early adult years. He went to synagogue as was his practice, as was his routine, as was his custom. I remember several years ago reading a book by 
what is now one of my favorite writers, Annie Dillard, who wrote on her own experience growing up going to worship in a Presbyterian church. She says this in her book, In American Childhood. She said, I had miles of Bible in memory, some perforce, but most by hap, like the words to songs. There was no corner of my brain where you couldn't find whole tapes and snarls and reels of Bible. I love that. I imagine the same could be said of the 30-year-old Jesus brought up in this synagogue, listening to swaths of scripture read out loud, taught the language of Jewish faith at an early age by the scribes and teachers serving the synagogue, hearing over and over the ancient stories of creation and captivity, of exile and exodus, of kings and covenants, of prophets and promises, and eventually coming to sense that he himself had a particular role to play in, the God, in God's great drama of salvation. This synagogue was more than just the place where his parents went to church. This was his home too. And now the text tells us he was invited to read. And so he stood up as the readers of Scripture did in those days, and the attendant handed Jesus the scroll containing the words of the prophet Isaiah. It would have been heavy and large. It would have been arranged on two spindles that you could unroll, unroll, unroll to find your place. Isaiah had a scroll all to himself. He was one of the major prophets for that reason. 18,000 plus words. We don't know if the reading from Isaiah was assigned for that day, much as our readings are assigned here, or if Jesus picked it himself, but the text says he unrolled the scroll and he found a particular set of verses from what we would call chapters 58 and 61. There weren't chapters and verses in those days, nor were there any vowel markings in the Hebrew text. It's just consonants arranged in tidy rows from right to left as Hebrew is. The part that Jesus finds is towards the end. So imagine the moment. The drama is building. Jesus is standing up and he begins to unroll, but to go from the beginning to the end in a scroll takes some time and everyone is waiting That Jesus found the place he was looking for tells us he knew where to go. He knew his way in and through this lengthy prophetic book. This probably wasn't his first time reading it. He didn't misquote it, nor did he mispronounce it, things that politicians pandering for a vote from the religious crowd might do in our day. He knew what he was looking for, and he found it, and he read aloud. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when the reading concluded, the text tells us he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down as preachers did in those days. And then the text says this. It says the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They looked intensely 
at him. They waited expectantly from him. His family waited nervously for him to speak. This was a big moment for Joseph's clan. Would Jesus do his family proud? And whether the folks in that sermon knew it, or, or synagogue knew it or not, they were in the midst of that holy silence between God's written word and God's proclaimed word. They were waiting for something to break the silence. They were waiting for something to speak into that stillness, to overwhelm the thick quiet between the reading and its interpretation. Their eyes were fixed on Jesus. Last year, I'm getting my pandemic years mixed up here, but last year, my uh, older two boys and I set off on a rather um, uh, um, epic quest through J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. And we read it out loud at night uh, uh, before they go to bed. We, the chapters are long, so we don't get through whole chapters at a time, but we have started reading through this. And I, first off, I am always struck whenever I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, just how beautiful the words are and the poetry is and the mythology is. It's gorgeous to read. It's descriptive and, vi and vivid. I absolutely love it. And so uh, last year we got into the Fellowship of the Ring and we came across a particular text. And I want to set it up first and I want to put the text up just to read it to you because I think it helps give another angle at this moment of waiting for something to happen in the silence. Frodo Baggins, as you all know, it was an admirable hobbit. He stood just about three feet tall. He is the innocent but heroic protagonist of the Lord of the Rings. And early in the story, Frodo and his companions are trying to discern what they will do with a powerful, dangerous, magical ring. At a great council meeting with all the wisest people in the world, it is decided that the ring must be destroyed. But doing so would involve a great, epic journey to a dangerous and evil mountain surrounded by all of the evil forces of the enemy. A great silence fell at that moment at the meeting. And then Tolkien says this. No one answered. The noon bell rang. Still no one spoke. Frodo glanced at all the faces, but they were not turned to him. All the council sat with downcast eyes as if in deep thought. A great dread fell on him as if he was awaiting the pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might never, might, might, hoped after all, never be spoken. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain in safety filled all his heart. At last, with an effort, he spoke, and he wondered to hear his own words as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. I was struck reading this because I think it clued me in again to the ministry of preaching wondered to hear his own words as if some other will was using 
his small voice into the holy silence of that Nazareth synagogue, into that expectant moment where some were filled with concern or expectation, Christ opened his mouth and spoke. He could have stayed silent. He could have stayed in relative safety, much like Frodo wanted to do. He was the incarnate word, the word made flesh, the one by whom all things were made, whose existence never began and would never end. He could have remained quiet. But something in that moment fell on Jesus. Something urged him to speak. The spirit that filled him with an inner knowledge of the will of God prodded him to enter into that silence of the synagogue and speak. I tell you, he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, you, today you have front row seats to the promises of God coming true. Today you are bearing witness to the mission of God among his people, a mission to restore, to raise up, to heal, to reconcile, to save. And all of this will happen through me, Jesus says. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Right now, as you're listening, in your hearing, this is no longer just a far-off, distant, ancient passage from a seemingly old and irrelevant book that your grandparents used to read occasionally. Today, Jesus says, it has been fulfilled. It has been brought to its appointed end. It's been brought to completion, even while you are sitting there and listening to it. Isaiah said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news, to proclaim freedom, to announce liberation, to proclaim release, healing, justice, to proclaim salvation. And Jesus speaks into the silence of the synagogue and says, Today, this is no longer abstract. It is now made concrete and visible in me. It has been fulfilled. And every single thing that we see Jesus saying and doing from this moment on for the rest of Luke's gospel can be held up against this scripture as perhaps a church's personnel committee might hold an employee's record to their job description. Every healing event, every sin forgiven, every evil spirit cast out, every teaching moment, every meal Jesus shares, everything he will do points back to the spirit-filled actions of God announced in this synagogue. Jesus steps into the sacred silence of that sanctuary and looks into the eyes of his friends, his family, his aged teachers, those who knew him when he was just that high, and says, this is what I'm about. This is why I am here. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. 2,000 years and 10,000 miles Apart from this story, we've gathered in this church's sanctuary 
We've gathered in Flint, Michigan as people who bear the name Christian. And around us, enveloping us as a heavy winter snow, is a different kind of thick silence. Our neighbors are still caught in cycles of poverty and economic depression. People are still caught in the captivity of indebtedness, anxiety, and fear. Those around us are still caught in the captivity of addiction, greed, and violence. Our neighbors are still victims of the oppression of racial prejudice, the lingering preconception that on account of skin color, they do not deserve fairness or justice. The silence of the Nazareth synagogue persists even today. It's a silence that's found in a phone call telling you that your loved one has been placed on hospice. It's the silence found in a doctor's office where you are told that it's cancer. It's the silence found in a bedroom where you long for the presence of your spouse, your partner. It's the aching silence of an empty womb. It's the stunned silence that comes after the loss of a child. Or the raging silence that comes with a broken marital promise. It's the silent oppression of doubt that constricts our faith and causes us to no longer be able to believe. Silence persists in our world. And the eyes of everyone are looking for someone to break it. The ears of everyone are searching for something to end the tyranny of quietness and shatter the stronghold of stillness. Who will step into this moment and speak? The Apostle Paul writes to some Christians living in Greece and tells them in our reading from 1 Corinthians 12 today, he says, you are the body of Christ. And later he will say that God has entrusted the message of reconciliation to us. We are ambassadors for Christ. He will say, as if God is making his appeal to the world through us. We are the body of of Christ. The Christ who spoke into the silence and declared his mission to proclaim forgiveness and restoration. The Christ who entered into the silence of sickness and possession and blindness and deafness. The Christ who broke bread in the silence of disbelief. The Christ who reached out a hand and touched the silence of death and what was considered unclean, raising the dead to new life, the Christ who grabbed hold of the silence of sin and chained it to his own body as he allowed himself to be crucified, the Christ who laid in the silence of death and who undid the silence of hell, who unchained us from the silence of judgment, the Christ who shattered the silence of hopelessness and bitterness in his resurrection. We are the body of that Christ. We are ambassadors of that Christ. And so if the silence around us is to be broken, it will be broken by the Spirit-filled body of Christ. 
It will be filled by spirit-filled women and men, summoned and empowered by the risen Christ to step into the silences of this world and speak, maybe through our words, but far more often through our acts. If societal and spiritual transformation is to happen in Flint, it will happen because spirit-filled members of Christ's body have found new ways of carrying out what Jesus began to do 2,000 years ago. We are the body of Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. And so as we go into another week of work or rest, of school, of play, as we think of another week and the many things that will transpire, let us never forget that in all things and in every place, by our baptisms, we have been joined to the ongoing work of Jesus in our schools and our neighborhoods and our cities and our churches. We've been entrusted with the silence-shattering message of the gospel. And so might we, this week, join our living Savior in proclaiming and announcing that good news. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say, Amen. Amen.